0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us there. You're hearing our new intro music that is debuting today, and it was written by WDET Sam Bobian. We want to thank him for that. The Senate trial of President Donald Trump shifts into full gear this week, and we'll get started later today. There are a lot of questions that swirl around how this is going to play out. Are there going to be additional witnesses called? Will this be a real examination of evidence and a serious consideration of whether the president's conduct warrants removal of office? Or is this going to be a show trial that's designed from the beginning to exonerate the president? Today, I'm going to speak with the two people who represent Michigan as jurors in this trial. In a little bit, we'll hear from Senator Gary Peters. But first, Senator Debbie Stabenow, our senior senator here in the state of Michigan, joins us to talk about her expectations for this process. Senator Stabenow, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Well, thanks, Stephen. It's always great to be with you.
0: Yes, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, So explain exactly what is happening now and what is about to happen procedurally in the Senate. We've seen this just a few times in our history. Give us sort of the front row seat that you're going to have for what we are about to see unfold.
1: Absolutely. Well, as we know, it's only the third time that we've had an impeachment trial or a president of the United States. And uh, in my mind, this goes way beyond an individual. It really is about making sure that the public feels it's fair and that no one's above the law, that we're following uh, the Constitution. And so uh, we're we're in a spot, though, that's going to make this very, very tough. First, we have uh, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who essentially is the leader of the jury, uh, who has already said he's working with the defendant and the defendant's attorneys and uh, doesn't want he's going to try to block any relevant witnesses who were there who could speak to what happened on the president's phone call or who were involved in the emails and the decision to withhold the funds, which, by the way, the independent arm of the government has now said that the president broke the law by doing that, the Mm -hmm. government accounting office. Mm -hmm. But now with the rule that the resolution that he just came out with late last night, it goes even farther. It's actually quite shocking to me because he's now saying he doesn't want to allow the um, evidence, the House records of evidence at the trial. So I don't know how you The House moved forward Mm -hmm. and provided, you know, um, uh, a uh, did uh, did witnesses and put together a document and passed two articles of impeachment on abuse of power, and um, and uh, you know, the concern about the uh, Congress obstruction of Congress, and now he's in in the rule he's offering on which we'd operate. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have that in the record. No new witnesses, no new documents, no new emails, but you couldn't even have the case that the House is presenting into the record. So, um, you know, I, I've never seen anything like this before.
0: Um, so, there, as you point out, there are already a lot of tensions that, that I think are – kind of setting this up you've got Mitch McConnell who's the Senate majority leader a member of the Republican Party which has control of of your chamber sort of setting the rules all by himself and not really considering what what Democrats want to do or or might do do you see any opportunity though <laughs> for Democrats to have an influence over this process because you don't have a majority do you just have to go along with whatever Mitch McConnell decides, and the other Republicans decide it's going to happen.
1: There is a, a way. And it, first of all, in the end, the final decision on whether or not uh, the president is convicted and should be removed from office is something that takes 67 members. Mm-hmm. But the process of whether or not to call witnesses get relevant documents, look at the emails that were exchanged, um, verifying the withholding of of funds illegally and so on. Um, That can be done with 51 votes. And so uh, all of uh, the folks on our side, that's 47, will vote to allow that to happen. And by the way, this is, we don't know exactly what everyone's going to say. This is about uh, having the people in the room be able to testify as to what, Happened, the people that were directed by the president to hold up the funds to talk about what happened. The president chose in the house not to have his attorneys testify. He could have. He blocked all the witnesses from coming in the house. So this is his opportunity. He's saying he didn't have a chance to make his case and he should have that opportunity. And so this is the opportunity for witnesses he can bring forward witnesses to say no this is not what happened um, and uh documents and so on so if four republicans join us to get to 51 members then uh we can see uh documents and emails that have been widely uh talked about in the press at this point and uh, the relevant witnesses witnesses who were involved in discussions on the phone call, involved in withholding the funds. Uh, we need to hear from the people who have information.
0: Hmm. And uh, since the House impeachment process unfolded, there's been a lot of new evidence that's come out, uh, including the recent statements from Lev Parnas about his efforts with Rudy Giuliani and Ukraine to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Uh, do you see a possibility for getting that kind of evidence introduced into, into the trial?
1: Well, I do think it's important, again, to look at all relevant information, including the fact that the independent watchdog of the federal government, uh, the government accounting office, uh, came out after the House voted on impeachment to say, yes, in fact, very Clearly, the president broke the law, something called the Impoundment Control Act that we don't pay attention to. But this was actually adopted by Congress back during the Nixon era when President Nixon was um, holding up funds that that were passed by the Congress uh, without the authority to do that. So a law was passed, and you can't do that without uh, agreement um, of Congress. And uh, it's on the books, and uh, the president broke the law. And so that came out. And then now we have uh, the additional uh, witness with incredible information of somebody who was involved with Rudy Giuliani on phone calls with the president now is uh, implicating Bill Barr. The attorney general is being very involved uh, in all of this. And so uh, that's uh, another uh, person that certainly was there. Again, this is not about... Witch hunt all over with just randomly people being witnesses, as in any trial. It's people that have information or that at least one side believes has information directly related to the accusations.
0: Hmm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you're with us. My guest is Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from here in Michigan. She is one of the jurors who will hear uh, the case against President Donald Trump that will unfold in the Senate uh, beginning today at noon in Washington. We're talking about what is likely to happen during that process, whether Democrats will be able to have any influence at all over what happens during that trial and what is going to happen after. What will the implications of all of this be? As always, if you want to join us on the phones, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. How do you expect this trial in the Senate to play out? Have you already decided how you hope all of this is supposed to go? Do you believe that Donald Trump is guilty of these things and should be removed from office? Or that he's not guilty and that uh, all of this is kind of a show being put on by by Democrats in the House of Representatives first? Uh, Or are you keeping an open mind? Are you someone who's waiting to see what the evidence might be or if there's new evidence to decide what you think? What evidence have you seen so far that you consider most pivotal in all of this? As always, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Debbie, I want to talk about the role that the Chief Justice plays in all of this. He has some say as well over the proceedings themselves. Of course, he's not a juror. He doesn't decide on the evidence, but he could decide, for instance, that some things that the Republicans don't want should
1: happen. It's true that the chief justice could have an activist role. We don't know what kind of role he will take under in the Clinton impeachment. Uh, chief Justice Rehnquist chose not to do that. Um, He was quoted after the trial as saying, I did very little and I did it very well. (laughs) So, um, he, you know, (laughs) you can choose to just sit back and basically call on people, uh, or you can rule. For instance, if there was a a 50-50 vote, um, normally the vice president, as the president of the Senate, would cast a tie vote. But the vice president is not in this proceeding. So the chief justice could cast a tie vote. Will he do that? I don't
0: know. That's one of the big questions I know. Do you fear that all of this will only galvanize Trump's name for many voters? In other words, that the political dynamic that's unfolding here, it, it, it is not as much of a slam dunk as many Democrats have said that they thought it was with Voters. The poll suggests that people are kind of split on this question. I I wonder if you can sort of assess what the political implications or consequences might be of what's going on.
1: Well, Stephen, I don't know in the end what the consequences will be. People in Michigan will have to decide. I do know that we're divided, and I'm very concerned broadly about that. I want to get us back, by the way, after this trial to be focused on the things we're not divided on, like lowering the cost of prescription drugs and protecting our water and all the other things, jobs and all the other things that are important to us. So um, that's, our, I think, our bigger challenge. But people are divided. But what I'm hearing, though, is uh, less division on the issue of fairness. I mean, people will say to me, I've never heard of a trial that doesn't have witnesses. Um, Neither have I. And so I do think there's a, a sense of the folks that are uh, watching this closely that they want fairness. And we're obligated to proceed with this. I mean, this is happening because of the president's behavior, not because somebody was trying to just move forward uh, in a political way. There's a of course politics is always involved, but there really are very big questions here about whether or not a president is above the law. Um, Do we believe in three branches of government? Do we uh, believe that um, we should not be engaging a foreign country to try to help a candidate in their election? Very big issues. When you go back and read what our founders were talking about. And Alexander Hamilton, who has now been, of course, (laughs) made famous in the wonderful musical, uh, talked very specifically about concern about, foreign powers coming in and getting in the middle of our elections and a lot of concern today about what is happening with that. And uh, and other countries are watching to see, uh, you know, do we really believe everything we say here about mm-hmm. about a democracy and the Constitution and checks and balances and nobody's above the law? Or are we just going to kind of drift into the status of a North Korea or Russia or something where a president, can, any president, can do anything he wants, and um, no one will stand up. I mean, I think these are very big questions and go beyond the the immediate situation.
0: Okay, Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from here in Michigan, one of the 100 jurors who will serve during the trial of President Donald Trump in the U.S. Senate. Really great to have you here with us uh, on your way to these important proceedings.
1: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: You too. Up next, we are going to hear from Senator Gary Peters, the junior senator from here in the state of Michigan, about his thoughts as the Senate trial of President Donald Trump gets underway in earnest. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We want to continue our conversation about the historic impeachment proceedings that will begin soon in the U.S. Senate. And now we want to talk to Michigan's other senator, the junior senator from the state of Michigan, Senator Gary Peters, who is also a Democrat. Gary, welcome back to Detroit Today
2: it's always uh, always a pleasure to be with you yeah
0: so uh, let's start with you talking about your expectations for this trial given what we've seen and heard leading up to this
2: well right now my uh, expectations are not that high given what we're hearing from uh, Mitch McConnell he just uh, put out uh, the rules that uh, he wants to push through uh, today uh, we'll be uh, voting on that uh, the first day is uh, about rules and unfortunately. There wasn't an agreement made. If you think of the last uh, impeachment, uh, Democrats, Republicans came together, set rules and uh, made sure that every effort uh, was made to make it a fair trial. That's clearly not what's happening uh, uh, in this case. Mitch McConnell is focused on trying to get this done as uh, quickly as possible. And looking at the rules, it means uh, at late at night uh, when people are not watching, uh, which uh, is not what you would think of an open and fair trial for the American people to hear the case on, on uh, both sides. Uh, We also would like to have witnesses. Uh, uh, Mitch McConnell is doing everything he can to prevent witnesses to come on uh, the record. You know, if you you think of trials that are going on across America today, there will be witnesses on the stand that take an oath, who have firsthand knowledge of uh, issues related to to the case. And jurors will be able to evaluate that testimony and make decisions uh, based on the facts. In fact, uh, if you look at the the rules, and uh, I've got to do a little deeper dive into it, but we're going to have to vote on evidence coming over from the House, and if he makes that a partisan vote, evidence that was even collected uh, during the hearings uh, in the House may not be admitted uh, into evidence uh, for us to to look at uh, in the trial. So it's uh, very concerning. Hopefully some of our motions uh, to make this uh, a more open and fair process, as our founders and the Constitution intended it to be, hopefully they'll be successful, but we'll have to wait and see. So
0: so I I wonder what you think the purpose of all of this will end up having been then. If, for instance, the House went through its process, which was heavily criticized by Republicans and the White House for not being, quote unquote, fair, that's what they've said, and then the Senate essentially unfolds a, a process that is partisan on the other side, then if you're the American people, you're watching this, what would have been the purpose of all of this?
2: Well, uh, certainly uh, when when you have uh, behavior from a president, uh, that's uh, questionable. Uh, that's the role of Congress is to, to hold uh, presidents accountable, uh, to make sure that questions are, are being asked. Uh, we have to provide oversight. You know, I serve as ranking member on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, we're the top oversight uh, committee for the U.S. Senate, and our job is to make sure that we're constantly looking at the the executive and making sure we're holding them accountable to the Congress as well as to the American people, uh, most uh, importantly. And that's the role in the Constitution. We have a balance of power where you have uh, the the legislative branch holding the executive uh, branch accountable and vice versa, and have uh, the judiciary in there as well. But right now... Uh, We're seeing that um, members uh, of at least the Senate right now uh, are not stepping away from the partisanship and keeping an open mind and saying, let's look at the facts. And in order to look at the facts, we actually have to have those facts presented. And when you think about one of the articles uh, of impeachment about obstruction of justice, uh, in order for us to do our job as an oversight body, you have to be able to get materials. You have to have people testify. You have to be able to subpoena materials. And if an executive basically says no, I don't have to provide anything to you, I'm above the law, then that's a serious problem for our democratic republic. There's no question about
0: it. So I also wonder if you can talk a little about how open... Democratic Senate minds are one of the criticisms I think coming from the Republican Party coming from Mitch McConnell coming from the White House is that this is nakedly partisan that Democrats have already decided the president is guilty of the things that the house charged charged him with and and held their part of the impeachment process around can you can you explain how your mind is sort of set at this point? Is it open to the idea that perhaps he did not do these things and that he should not be convicted in the Senate of these things? Or are you looking at this as a a fait accompli?
2: Well, personally, uh, I do not look at it as a fait accompli. I think that would be a violation of the oath of office, or I should say the oath that I took uh, for the uh, the trial. As you know, we all uh, stood there uh, last week, raised our hand, and said we will dispense with impartial justice. I I take an oath very seriously. I took my oath of office uh, in the United States Senate uh, seriously. I took my oath when I swore uh, uh, the uh, the oath uh, to become an officer in the United States Navy Reserve in my military service. I take it uh, very seriously. Uh, Obviously, a lot of information has been out to the public. This has been uh, covered uh, uh, extensively uh, by the media, but I still am going to approach a trial. I'm going to sit there. Uh, and pay very close attention to the arguments that are going to be made by the House managers, as well as uh, the uh, defense uh, attorneys uh, for for the, for the president. Uh, you know, I've been uh, I've been focused uh, as as these proceedings have been going on in the House. I've been focused on doing the job for people in Michigan. I've been working on legislation, passing legislation related to job training programs, making sure people have access to good quality jobs and get the training they need to do that protecting the Great Lakes, uh, keeping prescription drug prices in check and reducing those. And we have, a, we have a lot of work to do for the people of Michigan and, and America, and that's what I've been focusing on in the Senate. Uh, obviously, now that changes, that equation changes for at least uh, from 1 o'clock in the afternoon on uh, when we're in trial. But, of course, uh, I'll continue to work on those other issues in the, in the morning if uh, given an opportunity to have hearings and uh, to work on the, the, the business for the people, which I hope we can do
0: both. My guest is Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from here in Michigan. We're talking about the impeachment trial of President Trump, which will unfold soon in the Senate, according to rules that were set by Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Republican Party, which has control of that chamber, it will look really different than the process that unfolded in the House, where impeachment proceedings were shaped by Democrats. We're talking about what will happen and what the implications might be. Uh, Gary, I I wanna talk about the political side of this for a bit. You, of course, face a reelection challenge this year here in Michigan. Do you think that the impeachment process and the partisan nature of the impeachment process in both houses of Congress will hurt incumbents like you who are now in front of voters saying, hey, I I would like to go back? Give us a sense of what you think the consequences could be.
2: Well, I think uh, that's hard to to answer. And quite frankly, that's not what I focus on. What I focus on is uh, doing my job. I mean, you could make that argument about everything that we do in congress so the bills that we take up uh, the positions uh, that i take uh, all could have uh, electoral ramifications and that's the way the system works you know what i do is i make decisions based on what i think is uh, best for the people of uh, michigan based on collecting all the facts making uh, an informed uh, decision uh, and uh, whatever decision i make when i look in the mirror in the morning i believe that i did what i thought was right for the people of Michigan uh, based on, on all the facts. And that's for every issue that I deal with. I don't look at impeachment as any different. I'm going to make my decision based on the facts. Uh, once that decision is made, I will defend that decision based on my reasoning and, and how I came to that conclusion. And it will be up to the people of the state of Michigan to determine whether or not uh, they, they agree. And uh, and I think oftentimes uh, people are are uh, certainly the, the ultimate decision is important, but people also expect me uh, to be thoughtful, to do my homework, and do it based, uh, uh, make decisions based on my conscience.
0: What about the party? What about the Democratic Party? The, the, The criticism that has been aimed at Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House, for the way in which this was done, do you think that there is substantive value to that criticism that could translate into political consequence at the polls in November?
2: Well, I think you also have to remember when folks go to the polls uh, in November, there's a lot more on the ballot uh, than just uh, this process. uh, What will be on the ballot are how do we reduce health care costs for Americans? How do we protect the Great Lakes? How do we make sure people have training for the careers of the future? I mean, uh, uh, your voters are going to be looking at a whole basket of issues. Everything is on the ballot, I Say that uh, whenever there is an election, uh, all of the issues you care about are all on the ballot uh, that day, and I don't think any one particular issue will be the driving issue. Uh, People look at this in a a more uh, holistic or comprehensive way.
0: I, I also wonder, given the historic nature of all of this, this is just the third president to face this kind of consequence from the Congress. What what's going through your mind in terms of the historical significance? How you and your colleagues might be remembered thirty or forty or fifty years from now for the way this has uh, taken place?
2: Well, this this is a very solemn uh, time for for me. And if I think uh, broadly, one of my biggest uh, concerns, the thing that keeps me up uh, at at night, uh, is I just see this growing partisan divide and division that we see. Uh, in our country. And folks uh, tend to uh, get into their silo, uh, talk to folks uh, who share their same opinions and don't take uh, the time or the energy necessary to listen to the other side and try to find uh, common ground. I think we're in a a very pivotal time in the history of our country where folks are unwilling to reach across the aisle in order to find common ground and and, uh, to rise above uh, some of the, the really. Um, inflammatory rhetoric that we hear all too often uh, from from folks, and you know our our republic uh, needs to survive this. Uh, when you go to an impeachment process, uh, this was something that our framers uh, thought long and hard about. They thought it was necessary to provide a check on an executive. They were very concerned of a overreach of power of an executive. Uh, they did not want uh, the American people to elect kings. They wanted them to elect. Presidents that were accountable to people, and more importantly, to the rule of law—that uh, they, that we are a nation of laws that everybody has to follow. That's what uh, what keeps uh, this uh, republic uh, together, and all of that is under a strain right now. And we have to move uh, past this. We have to. Uh, we could still have vigorous debate about issues, and we should. And, and I'm passionate on a whole host of issues. Uh, But uh, in the end, uh, we still have to get the work done for the people of uh, Michigan and for the country. And that means uh, finding out what we have in common in in addition to our differences. uh, There's a whole lot that we have in common, too.
0: Okay. Gary Peters, Democratic senator from here in the state of Michigan. Always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today.
2: Great. Great to be with you, Stephen. Mm
0: -hmm. Up next, we're going to speak with presidential historian and impeachment expert Jeffrey Engel about the Senate's impeachment process. Stay with us on Detroit today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about impeachment proceedings in the U.S. Senate slated to start later today under rules that were devised by Senator Mitch McConnell, who is the majority leader of the Senate and a Republican uh, member of the party that has control of that chamber. We've been talking about what that means for the trial of President Donald Trump and whether Democrats have any chance at all to have influence over that process. Can they change the parameters that McConnell has set out for this to take place. We want to hear from you this hour as well. Tell us what you're thinking as impeachment trial proceedings begin in the U.S. Senate for just the third time in U.S. history. Are you somebody who is eagerly anticipating what will happen during this trial? Are you thinking that perhaps the president might be removed from office by the U.S. Senate? Or are you somebody who is skeptical of this entire process is somebody who thinks that it is about partisanship. It is about Democrats versus Republicans and not the rule of law. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Joining us now to talk a little more about the historical context for what we're about to see in Washington is Jeffrey Engel, who is the director for the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and also author of the book, Impeachment and American History. Jeffrey Engel, welcome back to Detroit Today.
3: Good to talk to you again.
0: Yeah. So you have a piece in the Washington Post that is titled The Key to Understanding President Trump's Impeachment Trial, Why the Senate is Not Really a Jury. Let's start the conversation there. What do you mean by that?
3: Sure. This actually is, I think, a a critical distinction between the Senate trial that we're about to see and, frankly, any other type of trial. We need to get our minds away from the idea that this is what we're going to see on law and order or this is a criminal case. This is a really unique animal. In 1999, Chief Justice Rehnquist ruled that the Senate was technically not a jury that the Senate, the 100 senators sitting and listening to the case, were technically a court, mm. which is a critical, critical distinction because a jury is only charged with determining guilt or innocence, you know, wrong or right. Uh, and they have to follow the judge's prescriptions on what to do, what to listen to, and most importantly, what evidence they can employ when making that decision and what standard of evidence they need to use for reaching a, a guilty or innocent verdict. That's not the case with the court. A court can do whatever the heck it wants. A court can overrule the judge in this case. A court, more importantly, is charged not with determining the analog question of guilt versus innocence, but rather determining what is really best for the nation, what is best for the country as a whole. So in that sense, the senators, and this is according to Justice Rehnquist's ruling, can basically employ any standard they want, and more importantly, can employ any evidence that they want, whether it's presented in the trial or not. So the question that we're seeing about witnesses coming up this week and about whether the Senate is going to accept the House's, House impeachment committee's trial uh, 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 impeachment evidence, that question in some sense is only a political one for the show of what the trial looks like, because senators can actually employ that evidence if they choose.
0: Hmm. And give us a sense from your chair of where this fits in the history of the United States, in the history of the United States Senate, in the history of the presidency. We've only seen this unfold two other times in our history. Where does this fit in?
3: You know, we've been making that point now for uh, months and months and months since Mm -hmm. this inquiry began officially, uh, that this is only really the third time in American history that we've gone this far in an impeachment case, and only really with Richard Nixon, we've only gone this far in some sense in four cases in the 250-odd years of our country. Mm -hmm. And I think actually that statement doesn't do justice to how important this is. Um, You know, we are a country that's been through wars. We've been through depressions. We've been through a civil war, for goodness sake. We've been we had a revolution. Uh, And this is a country that in all that time has only generated both the animosity towards a chief executive and a transgressive chief executive at the same time to produce this level of vitriol and this type of trial. So I, I think we need to remember that presidents have gone through depressions, as I mentioned, and not been impeached, uh, Abraham Lincoln was not impeached at the height of the South um, potential success in the in the Civil War when it looked like the Confederacy was going to win we 've gone through wars and depressions and other national crises and not been taken to the point of having a president removed from office except for these few times. And I think it's, it's really quite astounding when you take a step back.
0: So when you think of the circumstances that brought us to this point with this presidency, can you compare the things that President Trump was charged with in the House to the other things that we've seen in history bring us to this point? I mean, there is something about the nature of what he's accused of doing that harkens back to things that the founders were really thinking about and writing about at the time they formed the republic.
3: You know, that, that's exactly right. This, this case, you know, in all cases in history, we have to find the comparisons and then the differences. And this is the critical difference between this impeachment and the other two. In those impeachments, we did not necessarily see A genuine high crime, as the founders understood it under discussion now, just for the thousandth time so everybody can understand, a high crime doesn't need to be an actual crime on the books. Frankly, a president could be really creative and come up with something which is a new thing that nobody had ever thought of to transgress the American people's trust. A high crime is just that. It's something in which the president puts his or her own interests above the nations and actually winds up potentially harming the nation for their own personal gain. Um, In Andrew Johnson's case, that was a distinction in the 1860s about two things, really. The first was some arguments and difference, a big argument and difference over the Reconstruction policy after the Civil War, and also the fact that Andrew Johnson was a jerk and people didn't like him. (laughs) Uh, In Bill Clinton's case... Everyone agreed that Clinton had broken the law. There was no disputing that he had lied to a, a grand jury over his affair. The real question was is lying about an affair a high crime? Hmm. This type of dealing with a foreign power, putting your interests in the Ukraine case that we're seeing today, putting your own political interests potentially above the nation's, manipulating the power of your office for your own personal good, is exactly, for the first time in American history, exactly the kind of crime that uh, the founders feared. It's kind of crime, actually, that Richard Nixon wound up leaving office for. This type of abuse of power is something that the founders were greatly afraid of. Hmm.
0: My guest is Jeffrey Engel. He is the director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist, Methodist University and author of the book Impeachment in American History. He is a very appropriate guest for us today as we prepare for the U.S. Senate to begin its trial of President Donald Trump. For just the third time in U.S. history, we are going to see a president tried by the Senate for potential removal from office after being charged with uh, high crimes and misdemeanors by the House of Representatives. We want to hear from you as well. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313 Five seven seven one zero one nine. what are you expecting to see from this trial in the U.S. Senate? Are you somebody who is anticipating that the president will be removed? It seems a remote possibility, but maybe one that you figure is more likely than not, uh, or are you someone who sees this whole thing as kind of a show, something that is about partisan politics and not the rule of law? Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Mark in Ferndale. Mark, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, hi guys. I'm glad your your last uh, speaker is on here because it's killing me when everybody keeps analogizing it to a criminal trial because if it were um, the first thing i would do would be make a motion for dismissal pursuant to selective prosecution since nancy pelosi who would be the chief prosecutor got caught up admitting she's been doing this for over two years I, i mean i'm paraphrasing but she said something like that when she was accused of the overly expeditious nature of the of the proceedings, she said something like, well, this has been going on for two or two and a half years. And I think that would be, if it were a jury trial and it were a criminal trial, rather, you would, would be
0: just tell the prejudicial judge they're, <laughs> yeah,
2: they're after this guy. They've admitted they've been after this guy for two and a half years and they've been waiting to find something. So please dismiss it. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you. I really like the show. Thanks.
0: Uh, Mark, I appreciate the call and, and the comments. That's an interesting point, Jeffrey angle, this idea that, uh, that, if it were a trial there are there are things that have happened already that a judge would have to consider and and maybe maybe dismiss and that goes to your point that this is a very different process
3: exactly i think you know honestly the first thing that the judge would do would be to remove any of the people in his or her jury, again, not a jury, but in a typical trial, remove any of his or her people in a jury who had already predetermined the case and had already announced what they were going to do. So that would knock out about three-fourths of the Senate, at the very least. Um, you know, to go back to the, the, the caller's example, though, that the, and the argument that the Democrats have been going after the president, you know, from the very beginning, that is both absolutely true and, to my mind, a, a moot point, uh, because the Republicans went after Barack Obama. Democrats went after George W. Bush. We know, of course, that Republicans went after Bill Clinton. And in each case, I think we need to think about their quote unquote going after as when the police set up a speed trap. That is to say, when the police set up a speed trap, you do not get in trouble unless you speed. Hmm. And so in this case, all of those presidents I just mentioned knew that their opposition was just waiting for the moment for them to do something that was impeachable, some high crime, mm-hmm. some high bar. Uh, and in this case, you know, Donald Trump did something which crossed that bar. So I, I think we need to remember that the, the entire Ukraine event unfolded in the aftermath of the Mueller investigation, which was an investigation into foreign dealings over over an election. And so there's a sense in which one could argue that the president should have been hypersensitive to the idea of how he was going to engage foreign powers in American domestic politics. That is to say, using the speed trap analogy, the president knew there was a speed trap coming and, and still chose the speed.
0: Mm. Let's go to Bobby Joe in Detroit. She's got a comment that I think is Really, really on point with what you're talking about here, Jeffrey Engel. Bobby Joe, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, um, they've been doing this since day one. They do not. They're trying to um, overdo the will of the people they don't like who voted in. They're mad. They lost power, and this is all a big old sham.
0: So, so Bobby Joe, I, I think it's entirely reasonable to 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 think that a lot of people have told me the same thing, but I wonder what you make of the president's conduct here, the things that he not only is accused of doing, the things that he admits he did. Do you think that they are not worth investigating or putting through this process in in the Congress?
1: I think that he was trying to get rid of criminal acts that were in the Ukraine, like Biden and his son, that he believes they're involved in. And no, I just think they went through Mueller. They had all these um investigations and they came up with nothing.
0: Hmm. Uh, Bobby Joe, I appreciate the call and and the comments. Jeff Engel, sort of speak to what she's talking about there. This the idea again that that this was a trap, that this was a partisan trap. Uh, that that Democrats have been kind of laying in the weeds for this, and that the things that the president did are not all that unusual or extraordinary.
3: Well, let me answer that on two levels. First, as a as a presidential historian, I think, and and actually one of my specialties was on presidential phone calls. Believe it or not, um, <laughs> I have seen probably you know fifteen thousand presidential phone calls over the course of my career, and have never actually seen that sort of intersection of domestic American politics and foreign policy um, using the power of the president's office. But put that aside for a second, because that's one, man, one man's opinion. Um, I, I think the best way to think about this problem writ large is to apply what uh, a philosopher named John Rawls suggested uh, as a way to understand morality generally, is he, which is to apply what he called a veil of ignorance. That is to say, try if you can, it's impossible, but try if you can to remove any sense of who you are from the equation. You don't know if you're a Democrat or a Republican. You don't know if you're black, white. You don't know if you're a man or a woman. And then remove the identity of the offender in this case. So that's say you don't know if it's President Trump or President Obama or President Bush or President Joaquin. Who knows? If you are a person that doesn't know who you are, so you don't know if you're supposed to like the Republican or Democrat, and you hear that a president did the following things, take out all the names, take out all the parties, what would you think you know if you heard about a president who lied under oath about an affair if you didn't know if he was on your side or not would you want him removed if you heard about a president who you know asked a foreign power to investigate his primary political rival whether the rival is guilty or not to ask a foreign power to investigate a a rival if you didn't know who you were and you didn't know the identity of the president would you find that troublesome and i, I think that's a, a pretty good test to tell us whether or not there at least needs to be uh, there's enough smoke here to investigate further whether there's fire
0: again bobby joe i really appreciate the call and the comments before we get to more uh to more listeners jeff angle i i want to ask you um Uh, about something that Adam Schiff said on the Sunday morning shows over the weekend. He said, this would be the first impeachment trial in history that did not call witnesses. If Mitch McConnell gets his way, I want to know if that's an accurate statement and what you make of it. If it is true, is there something about the way that this has been configured by Mitch McConnell that makes it suspect?
3: Yes, that would be a true statement from, from, um, Adam Schiff. Now, of course, remember, we only have a few precedents to go on. Uh, it's in, only happened in, eight, twice
0: before, right?
3: Yeah. In, in 1868, you know, the, the trial took more than a month. Each side called uh, more than a dozen witnesses. Um, so put that aside. In 1999, uh, there was a real debate, just like we're having now, over whether or not witnesses should be called. In fact, the Senate began the trial, just as we may today, without having decided whether or not witnesses would be called. But there was a key difference in the Senate's ultimate decision to have witnesses in 1999 than what we're discussing today. As as I mentioned before, the the facts, and everybody keeps saying this, but everybody has their own interpretation of it, the facts were not in dispute in the sense that the witnesses that Republicans wanted to call in 1999 had already been deposed. They had already told their story. The question was whether or not the Senate was going to hear a new interview, a new uh, testimony, whether they're going to hear it in person or whether they're going to hear it as they ultimately did uh, via videotape and transcript. Um, So in that sense, the question was whether Republicans would get to use evidence that was already known To make the best case for the president's impeachment. What we're talking about today is a question of whether or not witnesses who have material information to to a potential crime are going to be allowed to testify to the president's guilt or innocence. So in a sense, you know, the Clinton trial in that sense, witnesses were about making it a show trial. In the best sense of the word, uh, showing the jury, showing the court, as as I said, what the what the president had done in the fullest sense. And today, the the question of witnesses is trying to find out what the president actually did. And that, that strikes me as as fundamentally different. And and frankly, you know, from a strictly constitutional sense, um, the Senate is supposed to not be in coordination with. The White House over these things. The Senate, traditionally, like the House, is supposed to be in opposition to the White House, each of them jealously guarding their own territory and their own prerogative, same with the Supreme Court. So in that sense, uh, you know, a senator who um, knows that the House has impeached a president and chooses not to hear as much evidence as possible is not following the constitutional process, at least as laid out by the architects of the Constitution.
0: Mm. Let's go to Bill in Dearborn. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: So, no doubt uh, Trump is, uh, you know, a, a good guy and innocent of all of this stuff and, and should be left as president. That being the case, he should just release all the appropriate staff to be witnesses and uh, release all <laughs> the appropriate documents, the the originals, not the redacted. And uh, then he'll be, uh, you know... Free
0: you to go ahead and, and run the country, that, that would end everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bill, I think you're being a little bit facetious there. I think I detect that in your tone, but, but I think that's an important point to discuss is if the president didn't do anything, if he is innocent in all of this, why not just release all the documents? Why not just let everybody who was involved in this go over to Congress and and say exactly what happened jeff engel I'll respond to that
3: you know there's a, a wonderful historical example of a president essentially a, a, making the point that in an impeachment trial they should not in any way shape or form be in charge of determining what evidence get released and that example is george washington and i gotta tell you as a presidential historian anytime we can use george washington as the example we're, we're feel, feeling like we're on pretty solid ground George Washington, in his administration, got into serious trouble with the Congress over the Jay Treaty, over a diplomatic matter. The details don't need to concern us here. And the House of Representatives asked for information. Washington basically said, it issued the first instance of executive privilege and said, my reading of the Constitution says the Senate has a role in foreign policy, but the House does not. So I do not have to show you anything, period. Next sentence, he said, Unless this was an impeachment, if your inquiry was about impeachment, then of course I would have to show you everything because no person could possibly be judge over what evidence should be released to their prosecutors or their investigators. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but the point that he made was that an impeachment case is, you know, beyond. Any claim of executive privilege just for the reason that to have an executive claim whether or not or determine whether or not a, a witness or a piece of evidence or a document can be released, um, really gives them the opportunity to make their own decision and make their own verdict It's something that would not exist in any other um, not just any other or court but any other is, is sense of logic i think
0: so so this idea of the Trump administration sort of hunkering down and not participating in the process. Is that a standout feature, too, here? No president, of course, wants to be impeached. No president wants to be part of the process of impeachment. But is this administration acting differently than we've seen the Clinton administration, for instance, or the Johnson administration?
3: Yeah, well, let's go back to Clinton and and Nixon both. In both of those cases, um, both presidents were not enthusiastic and forthcoming with all their evidence, but ultimately decided that they had no legal and, and frankly, practical political standing not to show the House, for the reasons I just mentioned, not to show the House and subsequently the Senate um, the information that was available. In fact, it's critical to remember that Ken Starr, who, of course, was the um, independent counsel who brought the investigation and the charges against Bill Clinton back in 1999, throughout the 1990s, who is now, of course, a member of President Trump's legal team. Um, Ken Starr included in his list of recommended impeachable offenses – that the House should consider the fact that President Clinton had abused his office and abused executive privilege because he was not fully forthcoming with everything the Starr investigation wanted. So in essence, you know, if you believe Ken Starr, or at least what Ken Starr wrote back when he was uh, in the public scene in 1999, then the president has no grounds to stand on whatsoever about releasing documents and releasing witnesses to talk.
0: Uh, quickly, let's go back to the phones here. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, I've got about a minute left, but I wanted to get you in here. You there, Robert? Nope, I don't think we have Robert. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, we've got about a minute left. But, okay, uh, real quick. Go ahead. Uh,
2: It's it's already decided. You know, the uh, the Republicans are going to let Trump walk. But I mean, to this point. Um, the, the house, they did what the Constitution allowed them to do, and to this point also, if Trump is so innocent, why won't he let Bolton, um, um, Mulvaney, Mahan, and all of those people that you know he wants to in, you know inject executive privilege on? Um, why won't he let them testify hmm. if he is so? Clean, yeah, as he would
0: say, Tom. I appreciate the call and the thoughts, Jeff Engel. Before we before we end, I wonder if you can make just a few predictions about what we're going to <laughs> see over the next week or so.
3: You know, I, I have been thinking about this uh, like a roller coaster, <laughs> which is to say, uh, over the next several weeks, next several days in particular, I think we're going to see a lot of twists and turns. We're going to see a lot of ups and downs that we didn't expect, perhaps. We might even get a little nauseous. Uh, And at the end of the day, we're going to wind up exactly where we expect, which is with the Senate uh, acquitting this president.
0: Okay. Jeff Engel, Director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and author of the book, Impeachment in American History. Always great to talk with you here on Detroit Today.
3: My pleasure, always.
0: That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We are going to look at the unemployment numbers in terms of how many people are actually earning a wage they can live off of. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.